sometimes it's an ad or a, or a design or a, anything, but sometimes it's a more fundamental needing to step back and say, okay, well, listen, I, I can't deliver that ambition with that constraint, but that ambition is too important for me to just suppress it because that constraint is there. I need to step back and completely reconsider how I'm going to deliver that ambition and that constraint. You are listening to One More Question, a podcast by the people of Nice Work. One of the things we often catch ourselves saying is, can we ask you one more question? This podcast is all about sharing that, the best conversations we've had with significant brand builders, experts, and communicators. The people that we've encountered as we go about our work of making people care by creating impactful brands. Season three is focused on unpacking the topic of branding. We talk to people who design brands, own brands, build brands, and even those who hire for brands. We explore what brands look like and how they behave across a wide spectrum, from world-renowned brands with massive budgets like Spotify to companies that are making big waves on small budgets. If you're looking for insights on the best ways to invest in and build your brand, this is the season for you. I'm your host, Ross Drakes. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Adam Morgan. Adam is the founder of Eat Big Fish, an international brand consultancy. He's the world's leader on challenger brands and his published author. His latest book, Overthrow 2, is out now. We talk about how collaboration is what will get companies through the next few years, challenger brands, and how it's more of a mindset than a market position, and how constraints are actually beautiful things. Enjoy. Adam, thank you so much for for joining us on the podcast. It's it's an honor to have you here today. Well, thank you, Roth. It's really good to join you. Hello? I lost you briefly. So should we kick that all off again? Let's go that off again. Cool. So so Adam, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's it's an absolute honor to have you. Well, thank you, Ross. It's really good to join you too. So I'd love to open just as a, a first question. You know, you talk a lot about collaboration. Seems to be one of the things that's that inspires you. Can you can you talk a little bit about how, how like, in the kind of context of brands and and brand building, what do you think collaboration means for for companies and for brands? Yeah, absolutely. So I um I was very struck. I, I read a book um, a little while ago. Um, by a man called Professor Sir Lawrence Friedman, who is the professor of military studies at King's College London. And the book is called Strategy. And it's this enormous tome, which is a history of strategy from primate colonies all the way through world history up to contemporary politics and media and entertainment. And he talks about the three or four basic principles of strategy um, that, that he's derived from this, this kind of really magisterial kind of study of the whole thing. And so one is adaptiveness. Uh, so he opens the book with a famous quote from Mike Tyson about everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. But one of the other ones is about um, what he calls alliance and coalition, i.e. Um, collaboration, and how it's a fundamental part of human strategy and human strategic endeavor. And um, I was very struck by this because most of my clients didn't really um, embrace collaboration in any fundamentally deep way. There was shallow collaboration, you know, which effectively is little more than celebrity endorsement. When we'll use this rapper's name on this, this you know, happy meal kind of thing. But that wasn't really about genuine collaboration. And so um, I, 
you know, one of the things obviously about challengers and challengers was my kind of passion and energy for the last 21 years, really, is that they inherently um, aren't as big as anybody else. And so, but their, their ambitions are at least as big as everybody else's, but their resources aren't as big as everybody else's. So I've been very interested for a long time in terms of how you can help um, brands, companies, people, teams access other people's resources. And collaboration clearly is a very good way of not only accessing resources, but actually an exchange of ideas and cultures. So one of the things I'm really interested in, in in terms of successful collaboration, deep collaboration, rather than simply borrowing somebody's name to stick on your product, is that you you embark on it for one reason. I want to, you know, I want to access your distribution or I want to access, you know, a, a joint innovation thought or something like that. Actually it's the unintended benefits very often of that, that the learnings that you take from each other about how to think about a category or how to think about a market or how to think about a consumer. That um, refreshes your understanding. And if you're a challenger, and one of the things you're fundamentally trying to do is change the conversation in the category in your favor, and therefore inherently progress the category on behalf of your customer, that's such a simple but powerful way to bring that learning and that freshness and that understanding into your kind of worldview, particularly once you've reached a certain size. So it's quite easy to be fresh at the beginning because you're new, you probably come from a different category, maintaining that freshness as you grow and therefore maintaining momentum and continuing to progress the category, that's where challenges start to kind of flatten out a bit. So collaboration has a lot of very rich benefits if you really approach it in this kind of deep, integral way. And think of it more of a, I was, I was interviewing a guy about this the other day from a, a dance music label called Disrupted. And um, he talked about YouTubers, he talked about how, um, you know, whereas you know, people in marketing tend to have what he called a land grab mentality. It's all very competitive. You take this bit, I'll take this bit. He said YouTubers have what they call a leg up mentality. Um, and that sense of let's help each other because we can all benefit in that kind of way. And that that sense of um, how maybe also particularly in a post-COVID world, we need to have more of a leg up mentality and how we support and help each other, I think is a really um, relevant and kind of contemporary thought. Yeah, I think that's it's, it's such a, an interesting thought around competition. Um, you know, it is that it's it's us or them. Um, but ultimately, if you're growing the category, if you if you're encouraging more people to purchase in your space, you, you're not competing, and and working together can actually be yeah. a, a very powerful thing. Um, well, and, and, and Nike has this really interesting thought now about pre-competitive spaces which I think is fascinating. So the idea is that there are times when we will be competitive and times when we won't be competitive. So if you're trying to genuinely shift um, uh, sustainability uh, and you'll shift the dial on sustainability in terms of, for instance, a waterless dyeing, right? So water is very intensive in dyeing, the dyeing process, as you know, so let's move to a waterless dyeing process. It's quite expensive for us to do that on our own, but if we partner with a parent competitor, Adidas, we can do it together much more cheaply. That benefits the planet, it benefits our customers, ultimately it benefits us. So there'll be a space in our relationship which is pre-competitive where we'll collaborate and then we'll get back into the competitive bit again. That's such an interesting idea that it's not its not a binary absolute thing where competitors or not. There are periods when we'll be competitive or not. I think is again, a really important modern way of thinking about who's friends and who's enemies, really. Yes, and I, and I suppose as... As budgets are constrained and and the the you know the market shift, you have to be more more dynamic in how you approach these problems. And I think working with your competitors is is going to get you there faster mm. 
um, and ultimately develop products that that people are going to be able to to purchase much sooner than than going for the do it on your your own mentality. Yeah, and I think within that, perhaps distinguishing between enemies and monsters. So, um, you know, the, the thought that actually. <laughs> Um, you know, Adidas may be my enemy, but the monster of environmental collapse is bigger than both of us and threatens our entire yes. community. We both need to join together to fight that. And so that that will be the thing that will be our focus at this point in our relationship is, again, a, just a very simple but useful construct, I think. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I mean, just thinking about that as a, as a concept is, you know, People like Facebook and Google and all of these big companies that compete against each other are, are facing a, a societal-wide distrust of data and what they're doing with it and social media. And, and uh, I guess the only way that they would potentially shift that entire narrative is by working together to, to figure something out. But that entire category, in theory, could come under threat if they don't do something about it I, I think that's right i mean i think i think one of the one of the times when you see collaboration used most is um when categories are kind of navigating the rapids of change so you look at automotive category moving into a moving towards a world of autonomous vehicles or semi-autonomous vehicles and how it's just too risky and too expensive for ford to try and do all of that on their own right you've got to partner with other people, Japanese car brands, um, German car brands, people who you wouldn't normally have partnered with to A, spread the risk a bit, B, make sure that there's going to be some new kind of standard shared by a number of different people, take some of their expertise and your expertise. And I think to your point about big tech, I don't think they're at the rapids yet, or they don't think they're at the rapids yet. But as you say, I'm sure that will come. And at that point, the only way to get through it is going to be by quite a deep collaboration to address that problem collectively. So, so how would you advise, uh, you know, a, a business that that's been running for a while to to think about collaboration and to to, to actually start taking steps to using this when they're they're building their brands? So, I think the first question, obviously, is is well, why might it be useful? or important to you. And I think um, if you look at different kinds of collaboration, they range from mutual survival at one end through to through navigating the rapids all the way through to um, what uh, kind of agronomists would call hybrid vigor. So let's look at either end of that. So mutual survival effectively is where, so let's look at, you know, I'm based in London, let's look at the British High Street, for instance, or the British pub, you know, post-COVID when we get out of this, how many pubs will still survive? How many of them will have such a high amount of debt that actually they'll need to um, have a, an entirely different kind of relationship with their community, um, need to maximize the uh, value that they can create out of all parts of that environment, out of that real estate in a way that they haven't, perhaps just by being a drinking house up to now. Um, so so how do you how do you kind of collaborate with different kinds of entities to allow you financially, but also in terms of your audience to survive. And one of the reasons that, as, you, as we all know, that you know the, the music business started moving into collaborations um, in the way that they have, and so it's now so pervasive, is because as the old music model started to die and people just didn't buy CDs or, or singles or kind of let alone um, albums anymore, 
artists needed to collaborate in a kind of a Spotify world to access each other's audience bases so that a uh, you know, your track would, by collaborating with me, you'd get both our audiences, you'd get more commercial bang for your bucks. So it was a, it was a need to survive, mutual survival effectively at that point. Um, and then that turned out to have all sorts of other benefits about freshness and, you know, cross category, um, kind of genre breaking and all that kind of stuff all the way through to at the other end, this notion of hybrid vigor, which I'm fascinated by, which is essentially says, um, so if, if you are, you know, if, if we are trying to create um, a rice for a um, an emerging market, then actually we can splice a disease-resistant rice with a high-yield rice together. That's hybrid vigor. So I get the best of both of these things, and I create a new thing that works better than both of us. So actually, collaborations that allow you to um, genuinely put two things together that are that create something that's better than either of them, I think are really interesting. So let's go to macro scale. So we talked at you know, kind of one end about the British public. So I've got a macro scale. So China in the, um, is creating this, this new, has created this new entity, as you probably know, called the Greater Bay Area, um, which is a, a group of, I think it's nine cities, including Hong Kong, Man, uh, Macau, Shenzhen, nine cities. And this is going to be this kind of powerhouse um, that's going to rival the the, you know the, the west the, the bay area in, in the western united states in northern california and a number of other kind of um, powerhouses around the world and each of those cities is going to bring something different so hong kong is going to bring its kind of financial expertise i think shenzhen brings the tech um macau is going to bring entertainment expertise so each of those is going to bring something different to that powerhouse so that is that is that notion of hybrid figure and if you look at cross-category collaborations within what used to be called, you know, um, urban lifestyle brands, for instance. It's that hybridization of music and entertainment and video entertainment and that that thing that creates this new, fresh energy within a category. So I mm. think the first thing to do to your question is identify, you know, do I just need to survive or am I actually trying to progress the category? And if so, um, who can I learn from? Um, and then at this, I think this point, uh, this, this notion about thinking about, um, uh, I want to be a kind of a deep integral collaborator. I, I could be a superficial collaborator. I could borrow somebody's brand and stick it on the front and say we're collaborating. That's just really about news or novelty. But if you want to get the the deeper benefits of it, starting to shift one's mindset to say, actually, I'm going to shift to a leg up mentality rather than a land grab mentality. I'm going to see this as integral. I'm I'm going to think about not simply what can they do for me, but what can I really bring to them? What's the exchange of not just value, but ideas and culture that, that that we can give each other that we can. So where are the learnings as well as the commercial benefits? It's that deeper sense of engagement and seeing what it can lead to and how we can both benefit from it. Um, that I think is probably that mindset shift that you probably need to then add into the, the identified business need. That's interesting. I also think it, it works. We always encourage our clients to involve uh, not only us, you know, from a, a sort of design perspective earlier in the project, but also engage other people in their company because often the, if you're solving a marketing the problem, the, the distribution team will have an interesting insight that might bring something to the table or the engineers might might do it. And I think we're seeing it a lot with the, the sort of big scale uh, tech brands that are, you know, they're merging their dev team and their marketing team and right. their brand team are getting like closer and closer because products 
and positioning and perception are all kind of now interlinked and you can't have the marketing team out there going, you know, this is a fun, friendly product. And then you log in and you have to do 15 steps to take your first, <laughs> you know, your first interaction. Those yeah. two things don't necessarily collide. So I think it can also happen inside the, yes. the organization. Too. Yeah, uh, I'm sure that's right. I'm sure that's right. I saw some data recently talking about just how bad organizations were at doing that. Um, and therefore what the opportunity is when they do something like I'm misremembering it, but something like only 20% of CMOs said they'd collaborated with somebody else in the C-suite in their own company in the past 12 months or something. It's, it's very underleveraged, but very powerful, as you say, when one can do it. I also think there's a huge opportunity with your clients. If you've got clients who really care about you and your product or your service, and they've been engaging with you for many years to engage them now and say, well, what do you need from us that can help you survive the next, you know, two, three years? And yeah. therefore we survive the next two, three years. I think you, you, you can potentially create very interesting ideas or products that you can then take to other, other clients to, to sell on. That's interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. So, so now, you know, Adam, you, like you said earlier, that the challenger brands is your passion and it's something you've been been driving for the last 21 years um you, you published a book a long time ago i'm interested to know from you how the hypothesis in that book has held up over the time and and how do you think this idea of a, a challenger as it's become a an accepted term that you hear in you know any kind of conference you go to you'll hear that sort of said like how has it evolved and, and changed since you originally sort of pin that thought yeah i mean i i i wrote it because um i had spent 17 years in advertising and i'd always worked for what were not called challenges at that point but were, were the kind of the 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 number two or number three or number four i'd, I'd worked in creative agencies with strategic planning departments and the combination of those two things tends to be used by clients who were number three or four in their category, outspent, outdistributed, outmuscled, launching or relaunching four or five years too late, um, and needed needed a kind of creative um, breakthrough, either a strategic creative breakthrough or a creative creative breakthrough, or ideally both to kind of make it work. So I'd worked on Virgin when it was just two planes, for instance, in in, in the States, in, in the UK. I'd worked on the launch of PlayStation um, in the US when it was inconceivable that anybody could topple um, Sega and Nintendo at that point. I'd worked on the relaunch of Apple in Europe. So I was kind of, I'd always seemed to be working for those kinds of clients. And I was frustrated that all the books, uh, when in those days people wrote and read books, were about leaders. It's about what you could, particularly in the US, what you could learn from GE, what you could learn from Coke, what you could learn from these massive, massive companies. And it was quite clear that, that you know, if you were the number two or three or four, there's very little you could learn from actually, because you're, you know, you, you didn't know anything like the ubiquity or the, the social acceptability or the budget or the distribution or the innovation department. You had nothing of that, none, nothing like those things. You had to learn from other people. So, I was just intrigued by the exercise of learning from others. I, I, and I kind of what I hoped because I set up my company on the back of it was this will last me a few years. You know, I'll give a good runway, four or five years, we'll be into something, and then off we go. I really didn't ex expect it to take off in the way that it did. I mean, you, you obviously could have wanted to do well, but it really just touched a nerve at the time. I was just very lucky. I just wrote it at the right time. It touched a nerve. And then I thought, okay, well, this, this too will pass, right? You know, because business books come and go. It's all be a soundbite, soundbite that disappeared. And I think, you know, it, it was replaced 
briefly by the whole startup mentality thought and then disruption came in and now disruption is often talked as being synonymous with challenger and i don't think they're down the same thing and we want to we can get on to that later on um but i i have been very pleased at at how well it's lasted um However, I do think two things. One is that there's still a lot of misunderstanding about what a challenger is. Too many people think it's about David versus Goliath or little players against big players. Um, and one of the things that has changed to your question, I think, is that there's a much clearer sense that challenger is primarily about a mindset, that there are there are small players that are not challengers. They're just small players. And they're quite happy to follow along in the kind of wake of the bigger player. And equally, there are some people who get to kind of number one, and then very specifically espouse the challenger mindset still. So you might have read there was an article in the FT uh, the other day, which was an interview um, with Reed Hastings at Netflix, where he said very clearly, it was the headline of the Financial Times full-page article, he said, we are still in challenger mode. Now, you would have thought Netflix is a kind of this huge dominant beast, wouldn't you? But his point was, we may be quite big in the US, but we're against some enormous media companies and enormous mm-hmm. entertainment companies, however you define entertainment these days. And actually, we're very small in the, other, in the rest of the world. So that notion of deliberately fueling and keeping the challenger mindset, even though we're enormous, is a very important part of that culture. So first of all, I think the thing that's evolved is everybody's much clearer, or should be much clearer, it's a mindset rather than anything else. And the second thing I think is what's clear if you look at the, the great challenges of the last um, 10 years, 10, 12, 15 years, is that it's less about challenging somebody. It's more about challenging something, something in the category, something in contemporary culture. So it goes back to the enemy and monsters thing. I think if you were to say 20 years ago, let's think about the great challenges, there were just these great battles every decade. You know, So the, the 60s would have been Hertz against Avis, Avis against Hertz. Um, the, the 70s would have been Pepsi against Coke. The 80s were Apple against IBM. The 90s were kind of Reebok and Nike. So there were these great Virgin against British Airways, these great, you know, mano a mano battles between brands. And that's what people thought challenges were. And, and of course, at some level, that is one way of being a challenger. I think over the past 10 years, if you look at brands that have taken on something in culture or taken on something in the culture of the category, you know, ranging from what well, was Dove in 2005. Um, I think Kalula was a was a kind of a great challenger in the South African market. Uh, it's probably off the pace a bit now, but you know it this had that kind of that kind of same kind of focus and energy all the way through to brands like Oatly now, who are taking on our relationship with dairy and why we actually don't need that relationship with dairy anymore to get the goodness and the protein that we used to get out of milk and cows. They're challenging something. They're challenging a conception, and so that sense about what we're going to challenge to succeed rather than who we're going to challenge to succeed is one of the biggest and probably most misunderstood shifts in what it means to be a challenger. So part of my energy now, I think, is is initially it was about trying to get people to accept that challengers needed a different set of rules. Now it's much more about trying to deepen that understanding of what that actually means and why it's not about necessarily picking a fight with another player. It's so much kind of deeper sense of what do we need to challenge to progress the category on our customer's behalf and how can that work? And, and the fact that actually there are a number of quite well-proven narratives, challenger narratives that one can lean into or explore anyway as starting points for, for what one does. So I still, I'd like to feel that I'm still a missionary about this. I'd like to feel I still have a lot of energy and passion for it. That hasn't been entirely burnt out in the last 21 years. It's just evolved a bit. Hmm. I mean, I like that idea of, of not having to challenge something because... You know, I, I always find 
going out against someone can, you know, is, is, is not as easy to get behind as someone like challenging a concept or challenge, you know, like it's much a, from a human perspective, it's much easier to get behind that if you believe in it, mm. because they can always come off as bullying. So if you take on someone and then you defeat them, you know, it can actually end up coming back to bite you in the ass. The people are like, oh, that actually wasn't very nice what they did or, or anything. But if you challenge a concept or make something better, it, it makes for a much more interesting stuck, interesting conversation and, and much easier for people to get emotionally invested in. Than, yeah, than I agree. And, and also person because you're, you're, person. yeah, I agree. And because your intent is different in that, isn't it? Which if you're challenging an enemy, it, it's, it's land grab mentality going back to that conversation. It's, it's I'm challenging them because it's better for me. If, mm. you know, if I win, then I win. Whereas it's going back to our point about monsters. If you're challenging something on behalf of your community, then if I win, we all win. Um, and my motivations for doing this are because I'm doing this on your behalf. You know, I, I want you to be better served. I want this product to be available at a better price, or I want you not to feel intimidated by this category or whatever it is that you're challenging becomes in the public benefit or at least your customer's benefit. And that's much more powerful. I mean, I love that idea. And I, I suppose one of, one of the, the concepts that you talk about a lot, um, you know, because often challenges are, are going out against something fairly insurmountable or quite entrenched or, um, you know, sort of constraints often comes into, into play. Like mm -hmm. I said, you can't outspend Coca-Cola. You can't, you can't, you know, they're just too large. You, you're never going to manufacture cheaper than the Chinese, you know? So, right. so how do you move into that space? You know, what is your, your sort of theory on, on constraints as, as a, a positive as opposed to something that you just look at and be like, well, we're going to give up because we can't beat Coke. That's impossible to yes. do. Yes. Um, well, yes, absolutely right. So I, I, um, my, my view on this was really shaped by, a. a, a I went to see, um, the, um, fashion designer and film director, Tom Ford, entrepreneur, how do you define him? I don't know what, but all those things that he does, that Tom Ford, I went to see him speak. Um, and his first film had just come out, the Colin Firth movie, A Single Man, um, in London a few years ago. And he was being interviewed by this very gushing journalist from the Times to, who, who was on stage with him and was talking about you know, the film and, and interviewing. And he was very relaxed and kind of very confident and, and talking about his authorial vision and the film and, and all that kind of stuff. And he was very lazy. It's very kind of classic alpha pose. He had his, his sitting back, you know, he had his hands behind his head, he's had his legs crossed. He was kind of unbuttoned you know very elegantly everybody in the room was in love with him and rightly so very compelling man and then so then she um threw the question open to the audience and said okay has anyone got any questions for, for tom and so i put my hand up at the back um and he pointed to me and he said yes you know badly dressed young pale englishman at the back row and i said great <laughs> i'd heard that he described his catwalk shows as filmic his um and I, I wanted to know what that meant so i said i asked him what he'd learned from the world of fashion he'd applied to film and what he'd learned from the film, he'd applied to fashion, a kind of classic, you know, outside in challenger kind of thinking. And he said this really, first of all, his body language completely changed. So he went from this, as we talked about, the, the introduction of the notion of catwalk shows, he moved from this, he leant forward, and he put his hands together like this on his knees. And he looked at me and he said, um, what you have to understand is that in a catwalk show, you have 13 minutes. He didn't say roughly quarter of an hour or not a lot of time. He said, 13 minutes. He repeated it, 13 minutes. 
And in that time, he said, you've got to convince this very cynical, seen-it-all audience in Shanghai or Milan or New York, wherever you are, that yours is the most exciting vision that they've seen in these two or three days. And you've got, you know, Anna Winter sitting in the front row. You've got all these people waving at each other and, you know, all this kind of stuff. They're all very kind of distracted. So he said, you have to have a really clear sense of the story you're going to tell. You have to tell it in a series of chapters. Um, and and so basically said, you know, I, I turn the music up and the lights down. Boom, act one, out I come. And so the bottles come out and they tell the first thing. Boom, act two, out we go. And And then he said this absolutely astonishing thing. He said, my ambition by the end of that 13 minutes, is to get the entire audience breathing in and out at the same time. I will know that my catwalk show has been a success if as the last you know, Romanian size zero leaves the stage, I can hear the entire audience exhale at the same time. And I love that because he just spent the beginning of the thing telling me about his constraints, right? His constraints are, don't have a lot of time, very cynical audience, seen it all, very jaded. So in that situation, so what's the relationship there between ambition and constraint, right? Constraint goes up, very natural to kind of reduce the ambition. How much can you really achieve? We're just trying to catch their attention with something. He doesn't do that. He actually, constraint goes up. He actually ramps the ambition right up to this extraordinary KPI. And that's what leads to Boom Act One. So I was struck by this because I'd been looking at um, the whole notion of challenges because challenges are, are inherently constrained, right? They're constrained in terms of budget, resource, manpower, awareness, all those other, no innovation department, all those other kinds of things. And yet, and yet, um, lots of them fail, but lots of them succeed. There's this kind of vitality that very often those constraints seem to spur them to do. They make them, you know, in your line of work, more creative or embrace a, a, they're more open to braver design, you know, because they have to, they have to pop out. They can't fall into that sea of sameness. So what are the benefits of constraints? And so I sort of stepped out, I suppose, of just a marketing and, and looked at um, what a wide range of different kinds of brands had done in terms of constraints, ranging from what was then um, SAB as a brewery in South Africa and constraints around water and water consumption and agronomy, um, all the way through to, to marketing. And I suppose where you end up, and it was a journey for me too, it was a really inspiring personal journey talking to all these people, where you end up recognizing, of course, is what creatives like you, I'm not a creative person, you are a creative person, will naturally recognize, which is, of course, constraints are fundamental to creative um, breakthrough. And sometimes it's an ad or a, or a design or a, anything, but sometimes it's a more fundamental needing to step back and say, okay, well, listen, I, I can't deliver that ambition uh, with that constraint, but that ambition is too important for me to just suppress it because that constraint is there. I need to step back and completely reconsider how I'm going to deliver that ambition and that constraint um, now that I face it. And if you talk to cognitive scientists, what they'll tell you is, um, if you couple those two things together, then your brain gets pr productively uncomfortable and because it's, it's forced to uh, interrogate the relationship between two things that it doesn't think can, can coexist and belong together. And it forces you to kind of interrogate the underlying assumptions. And at some level, as we move in, you know, whatever kind of world we're moving into in the you know, mid-COVID, post-COVID world, being constantly productively uncomfortable is the state we need to be in, right? We, we are... We are uncomfortable anyway. We're going to be uncomfortable for a period. We need to be productively uncomfortable rather than unproductively uncomfortable. And, and it's easy to see companies 
certainly where I am around the UK, almost in a kind of defensive crouch about the entire thing. Let's just kind of get through this. Let's just kind of get through the bombing and we'll be fine. That's not how we're going to succeed at this. We have to be productively uncomfortable. So that notion about accepting the constraint, not reducing our ambition, but actually linking the two together in what becomes a kind of propelling question for us that forces us out of the paths of the past is absolutely key. The second key thing that that I kind of found on this kind of journey is um, it's a very simple thing that that um, somebody said to me, a man called Colin Kelly, um, who was a, a, the, the CTO at Warburton's, which is a bakery in the UK at the time. He said, I don't allow anybody who, um, well, I'm trying to solve one of these very difficult problems, right? I'm trying to deal with a propelling question, um, trying to find a way for an ambition to overcome or, or to be stimulated by a constraint. I don't allow anybody in my team to start a sentence with the words we can't because. They have to start the sentence we can if. So he forces the whole conversation to be about how is this going to be possible rather than mm. allowing it to drift into conversation about why it's not possible. Such a simple thing to say, such a profoundly important shift. And then third is this just this notion, it comes back to the collaboration question that we discussed at the top of the, the top of our conversation together, which is the notion of adjacent abundance, which actually is you have to be resourcefulness is the most important quality of entrepreneurship in many ways uh, and in fact the dean of um the, the man who set up the school of entrepreneurship at harvard uh he defined entrepreneurship as just one thing so it's easy to define it as lots of things self-starter you know agile creative you know get up and go he said let's make it mean just one thing let's make entrepreneurship mean the pursuit of opportunity beyond resources controlled pursuit of opportunity beyond resources controlled. So I love this idea of adjacent abundance, that actually we have all sorts of resources all the way around us. You know, I, I, you know, you and I know each other. You have a whole bunch of resources. I have a bunch of resources. I don't control yours. You don't control mine. But if I can find out what they are and why yours might be good for me and I can access them, then actually I have access to resources beyond my control. As an entrepreneur, that's what you spend a lot of your time doing, accessing money, accessing distribution. And that more broad sense about how we can be much better, how we can teach ourselves to be more resourceful as individuals, as business people, as global citizens, um, and how to use those resources better, not just more, is, I think, a key part of that, that sense about how we turn limitations into opportunities. So I, it's changed my entire worldview. I, I see constraints as very stimulating and interesting now, whereas I would previously have lapsed into that thought that, okay, they're going to restrict what I can be. I mean, I love that. One of my favorite things, if you haven't looked at it, go look on Twitter for three word stories. Oh, right. Yeah. You have to tell a story with three words. And it's, I mean, the, the creativity is endless. The, you know, the constraint is constant and, the, and how far people push those three words is, yeah. is unbelievable. Um, we do an exercise with our clients, which is actually stolen from, from sort of design thinking or design sprints, which is the exercise of how might we. Right. How might we? I, okay. and, and you take any problem, any constraints and say, well, how might we? And I mean, some of the ideas are completely ridiculous and not founded in anything. But if you look at a, a company like Tesla, you know, they've, they've already conceived of things they can't engineer yet. Mm -hmm. You know, and they, they're just trying to fill in the gap between here and there that they've They've already kind of thought ahead. Um, and, and I think it is one of the reasons that their brand is worth so much 
even though their output is so little comparably to their, their competitors. You know, I, I think Mercedes made more electric cars this year than Tesla has ever manufactured in right. their history. And yet Tesla, you know, is, is worth five times more than them. And I think it is that, that's that sort of forward thinkingness and mm. not letting the constraints um, bog you down. And, and I suppose in this, you know, in our pre-call, there's this, this almost this concept of, of short-term versus long-term, um, you know, and I think right now in this time, a lot of companies and a lot of brands are thinking very short-term. Um, and I, I think that's very much the constraints limiting them. And, you know, I think the, the true visionaries are, are looking a little bit more long-term. Like, have you seen that playing out in, in all sort of, you know, world and, and the challenger brands that you're working with? Well, funnily enough, I think I think one of the people, the groups of people I, I am seeing thinking more long term is quite big legacy companies, let's say legacy packaged goods companies, um, who've had a positive bump in the downturn because there's been a return to comfort, you know, and and convenience and tins and packs and all that kind of stuff have done well. And I have seen uh, and in many ways that was an unexpected bump because the headwinds up to that point had been against them, right? There'd been lots of mm-hmm. small um, spunky artisanal products in that supermarkets had loved and championed that um, had kind of gone well, and and those have have had a tougher time recently, obviously for for all the reasons that we know. Um, so I have seen actually those kind of legacy companies again thinking about okay, so how can we've had this kind of bump? How can we sustain that? So what is the opportunity for us to really disrupt ourselves um, in terms of how we think um, that we'll kind of uh, take that all the way forward? Um, and then there's a whole bunch of people who are just obviously worried about cash flow. So that's a, that's a harder conversation, I think. So, so yes, I am seeing um, signs of that, though not necessarily in the places you'd you'd most expect. So the least the least likely places are doing it. Yeah, which um, is exciting. As a as a sort of closing question for you, um, you know, you've mentioned that you're not a not a creative, but you've strategized and, and helped some of these massive companies to sort of think differently and position themselves differently what what role do you see brands playing in society like what what should these brands be thinking about and and thinking about their place um going forward so i think that um there's there's a lot of conversation isn't there about the the fact that brands have entirely misunderstood and brand owners entirely misunderstood the degree to which people care or don't care about them. So um, the Ehrenberg Bass stuff about the fact that, you know, there is no real loyalty. It's all linked to penetration. And and what does that mean is that people don't have more intense relationships with one brand rather than another. Um, And then a kind of a broader conversation, I think, in the strategic community, the advertising strategic community about kind of let's get over ourselves. People don't care about these things that much Um, is, is clearly a good cautionary note and tale for all of us. Um, and at the same time, I do think that one can see challenges genuinely um, impacting the way that people think in, in maybe smaller ways than they, they would like, but nevertheless impacting the way that people think. So if I look at Oatly as a brand, um, you know, really starting off as a way of repositioning oat milk in an interesting way, but then moving much more to be a champion of plant-based living and evidence of the fact that actually you don't, there isn't a kind of a taste compromise by switching from 
what you knew and love in dairy to plant-based alternatives to things like coffee. I do think it is possible for brands to be very different in uh, to be real change agents in that kind of way in the way that people think. And I, increasingly, I'm not suggesting that every brand can or should do that, but I think the um, the and I, I think again, there's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of uh, what's the right way to put it? I guess controversy is strong about purpose, right? So there's a you know some people say actually every brand needs to have a purpose, companies need to have a purpose, and there are others that are saying actually no purpose is a not to be confused with positioning. Those are two different things, which I entirely agree with, uh, but b also actually is completely bogus for most people because they don't most companies don't really follow it through. I don't really if you're interested in challenges, most of them are driven by a desire to challenge something and therefore a desire to make a positive change in the world. And I do think brands as a focus for teams of people who want to do that and make that impact are very positive entities. And um, whether they can make the impact they really want to, as I say, is you know, is, is a more of a kind of question for, for discussion. But I, I do believe, I believe in brands. I believe in the power of brands. I think that the, uh, the conversation around um what brands can and can't do is a very healthy one, but I think it's just leading to greater clarity and greater determination and greater energy. And I'm very struck by the fact that if you talk to VCs, what they'll say is, if you look at the cream of the people that are coming out of the, you know, the most exciting kind of young entrepreneurs that are coming out, uh, or, or sort of entrepreneurial spirits, 10 years ago, they'd have gone into finance. Five years ago, they'd have gone into tech. These days, they're going to things like packaged goods. They want to start their own companies. They've got this kind of energy and they want to do something that makes a positive difference. And brands are absolutely integral to that. And I think that's a very exciting world for us all to be part of. I love that. I mean, I love that, that, that cautionary tale of that this is not as important as we all, all believe it is, um, I think is, is always a sobering note. Um, but I, I like that idea that you can use intention you can put intention behind something you can you know coming back to that idea you can challenge a concept you can challenge something and you can use that as fuel to to drive your business forward to drive yourself forward and to get your people to agree with you and jump on the you know jump on the bandwagon yeah come along with you absolutely well, Adam, I mean, thank you. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation. Um, and, and I like your statement on your, on your website, which is that, um, you know, every, every brand can be a little bit more of a challenger. So thank you for inspiring oh, people to think about that a little bit more. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Very pleased to be here. Awesome. And we'll catch you in the next one. Bye-bye. Look forward to it. All right. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening. We believe that sharing knowledge is an obligation. So if you know someone who's building a brand or needs some inspiration for their brand, please share this podcast with them. This is our third season, and we'd be grateful if you'd hit that subscribe button so you're the first one to know when a new episode comes out. Or even better, leave us a review and tell the world how much you enjoy listening. This really helps. One more question is brought to you by the people at NiceWork. NiceWork is a purpose-driven company helping people who want to make a dent in the world by building brands that people give a shit about. We're based in Johannesburg, South Africa and serve companies around the world. If you'd like to know more, partner with us or make a suggestion, reach out at www.nicework.co.za. And if you're one of those really old school people, send us a letter and we'll make you a mixtape.